This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When I'm talking about acceptance, I'm not talking about some kind of you know, BS, like, like I'm pretending like it doesn't affect me, but I'm, you know, allowing myself to be deeply affected by this and, you know, to feel the, the pain and the grief. But there's a larger, there's a larger context, a larger kind of encompassing of that pain, pain and suffering that itself is not touched by the pain, that is not in pain itself, you know, this observer part of ourselves. That was Seth Gillihan on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com 
slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Debbie and I are here to introduce an episode. I got to interview Seth Gillahan, whose recent book is Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, A Simple Path to Healing, Hope, and Peace. And I love talking with Seth. Yeah, he's so genuine and just lovely. I think I really enjoyed listening to this conversation. I really appreciated his openness and how, as I was listening, I was kind of buzzing around the kitchen, like doing some dishes and prepping dinner. And I just felt so sort of grounded listening to him. I just, yeah, I'm so glad he came on. Yeah. He's so authentic and has so many smart evidence-backed tools that can help people. What I think is especially powerful about what he shares in his book and in our conversation is his very personal journey through illness, including just that morning that we met and how some of the tools that he writes about have helped him to manage a very ongoing challenge that he has with his personal health. And he shares that in a very vulnerable, authentic way, but also in a very inspiring, powerful way. The other part that I wanted to chat about with you, Debbie, is this idea of mindfulness inside of our consumer culture. Uh, it's it's interesting because I'm, I'm kind of deep into that social criticism of mindfulness and Western wellness. I've read the book McMindfulness and American Detox and a couple other books that kind of critique this. And so for people who aren't familiar with this dilemma, you know, it's like mindfulness is really based on these ancient practices that we know are helpful to people. And I know that personally, because I've practiced mindfulness, you know, sometimes on and off formally, and also just in my daily life, I find it helpful. There's so much research supporting it if you're, you know, and obviously the fact that it's been around for so long, it's really helpful to people. But I think the, the criticism is more around some of the ways it's used in Western wellness these days. First of all, it does have that sort of consumerist capitalist, like someone's trying to make a buck off you, you know, and it's, so people are selling programs, people are selling accessories to go with it. And I think that that can be problematic for one thing. And also, it can be used a little bit as a quick fix, I think, and sort of marketed that way, like a feel better strategy, which I mean, isn't really consistent with this true spirit of it. And I think I feel like sometimes people are almost seeking like that blissed out feeling or that sort of, you know, that full spiritual feeling in a way. It's great. It's not bad. <laughs> I think it's really helpful to people, but sometimes it does have almost like an avoidance to it or a little bit of a like, seeking to be, you know, the best mindful person or something like that. And I think sometimes actually it can contribute to people almost like turning away from some of the real problems in the world, which is also not really consistent with like, for instance, the Buddhist concept of right action, like it's not meant to be used as an individual feel better technique. But I do think that often that's how I see it framed in, in our world that we're living in. Right. Right. In this kind of a culture, it, it, mindfulness has been sort of perverted into this end goal, right, of getting somewhere, either more profit or feel better. And what it, the intention is more to allow us to be present for life's journey in a way that allows us to take right action in moment to moment. And so I think we do need to be careful as we practice mindfulness to make sure that we're using it in ways that are more process-oriented instead of outcome-driven. Yeah. As an example of where I've seen this, so I'm, I'm 
I'm writing a burnout book. And I think in the burnout world, like we know that mindfulness can be really helpful for burnout. But then what happened is that, you know, they started creating these mindfulness programs to help with burnout that have gotten some flack recently, because a lot of times they're used in this sort of quick fix kind of way to get people back to being more productive. And so, you know, like an organization, for instance, a hospital, if you're in healthcare, will like make everyone do this mindfulness program, hoping to get them back (laughs) up and running. And people are kind of like, you're not addressing the real issues. And this is, it is kind of used sometimes, I think, in these Band-Aid kind of approach ways, which really is not consistent with the heart of, of true mindfulness in the way that it's been practiced for thousands of years. And I think Seth speaks to this is like, well, how do I personally take the parts of mindfulness that work for me and that benefit me and continue practicing it? So I don't want to toss it I don't want to toss the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, I want to take the good parts of it, but without getting seduced by those parts of it that are more tied to consumerism and that maybe are used in ways that are are kind of, I think, you know, maybe less helpful, but without getting into that trap, right? Without ignoring the problems of the world, without using it as that quick fix kind of thing. And I think that Seth offers a really wonderful voice on that. He clearly finds it helpful and advocates for it and is also very much aware of some of those problems. So I just, I really appreciated the stance that he takes on this. Yeah. So I hope that you listen all the way through because he does really offer some really valuable tips and we hope that you get a lot out of this conversation with Seth Gillihan. Seth Gillihan is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, host of the podcast, Think, Act, Be, and creator of the Think, Act, Be online school. He specializes in mindful cognitive behavioral therapy and shares his simple research-based practices throughout his work, including through his just-published book, Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, A Simple Path to Healing, Hope, and Peace, which we are here to discuss today. Welcome, Seth. Well, thanks for having me, Ayal. It's good to speak with you again. It is. It was so much fun to be on your podcast, Think, Act, Be, which is a wonderful podcast that I highly recommend, and I'm really excited to have you on ours So I want to start by first just applauding this book, which shares a whole lot of science and simple practical tools, but which also shares your very personal journey through illness, both physical illness and psychological illness, depression. And I know from personal experience as a therapist and writer that it can be pretty hard to go public with personal struggles. So I just wanted to kind of start with asking, what was it like for you to share so much of your painful struggle in this pretty vulnerable way? Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's That's a good question. I mean, it took me quite a while to get there because I I know for many years in my practice, I didn't feel like I could admit to the patients I was treating that I was having any kind of struggle. I mean, obviously, when you're meeting with a health professional or mental health professional, you don't expect them to kind of be sharing like, well, you know, I had a rough morning or or that kind of thing. Um, But, and, and, you know, it, it could obviously... Uh, not be helpful a lot of the time. You know, someone is, if if a patient knows that I'm, you know, having a difficult day, then that might affect how how much they feel like they can share or, you know, quote unquote, burden me with what they're dealing with. But I think there also was, well, I know there was a big part of me that didn't want to admit anything that might make me look weak or like I 
I mean, here I am, someone treating depression and, oh, what do you know? Like I wound up depressed and didn't realize it for, for quite a while because as you know, a lot of depression symptoms just look like other things like fatigue or, um, or I mean, just you know, the, a number of things that happened one by one, but didn't just announce themselves as depression, insomnia, for example. So, I, I think it was, I finally reached a point where it just didn't really feel like I had another, another option, or, or at least the only real, the only, the best option that I had was just to be honest. I think that was my, that was my overriding, well, I think my overriding goal in general over these past few years has been to, you know, as I've been dealing with this illness, which is, which is in, in a lot of ways ongoing, but how to, how to be, bring more of myself in a way that felt more honest and more real, uh, just, and just more human. And that was explicitly my goal with this book was to, to just write in a way that felt true. And, and when I was being honest about my own struggles, it often, I mean, that's often when I knew that I was, was being honest, I was being honest enough. I was sharing enough of myself in a way that uh, hopefully other, other people could relate to and find helpful. Definitely. I think it really is something that makes this book stand apart because it's like that commercial for the hair club for men from the 1980s. It's like, <laughs> you're not just the president of the hair club, you're also a member. But there is something so powerful about teaching these tools and saying, you know, I struggle too. And here's what I did that was really helpful, that really transformed some of the pain that I was struggling with into something that I can be proud of and into some, into a way of, of being in life that works well. And I think for a lot of the kind of skills that we teach, it can feel a little top down with the therapist or the writer explaining mm -hmm. these things. And you're kind of right side by side with the reader. And I'm guessing with your patients in a way that feels so connecting, which is a part of, I think, of the healing process that you offer. Yeah. 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 I definitely agree with that. It is funny how there's this, I mean, we, we don't assume that oncologists shouldn't get cancer or that, you know, pulmonologists will never have sleep apnea. But I think there is an assumption or, or at least a hope that, that, you know, people who are treating, you know, mental um, or, you know, psychological conditions uh, that, you know, that somehow they'll be, a, they'll be on a different plane that, that we won't be, or at least maybe those of us who, who treat these things like to imagine that, that somehow we're, we're different and set apart or, or, until we until we're forced to accept that we're that we're not different, maybe we like to imagine that sort of thing. But yeah, but it, and I think the reality is many of us are wounded healers. We mm, sort of come into this yeah. profession because we've had pain in our lives and have struggled to manage it, and that is sort of part of what drives the interest in psychology and psychology practices. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, it's not not only is it not an impediment, but it but it often facilitates something more, more real, more connected. I mean, I, I really felt, you know, during those, those years when I was still doing full-time therapy, but I was also, you know, really just struggling every day to get through the day and to, to get through my sessions. I don't think I ever had a period of more, more productive or, or deeper clinical work 
because it was just, I mean, I was so raw and it was so easy to connect to what my patients were describing. I mean, not, not uncommonly, you know, I may have been dealing with something that day that then, you know, one of the people I was treating was, was going through and, and it was, it's just, it's such a different thing to kind of, I mean, to empathize as if, and then to empathize with really, I mean, as, as you suggested, like alongside someone, like both feet in that person's reality. And like, yes, yes, I know. I know what you're describing and I'm not, I'm not just making this up. I'm not, I'm not imagining what it must be like for you. I never know exactly what it's like for another person, but, but having had, you know, these, these types of struggles, it's just so much, the, the connection just seems like it's, it's much more meaningful. Right. I mean, you, you can't be more validating than when you really are right there, literally experiencing similar kinds of things as the person who's sharing their experience with you. It reminds me actually in the very beginning when I was getting trained to be a therapist, one of my very, very first clients had very crippling social anxiety, which mm -hmm. I was also struggling with. And I was, it was really amazing because I was getting taught the tools, how to treat social anxiety, how people can manage it, you know, using the various strategies and cognitive behavioral therapy treating this person who I thought was terrific, who I could see those symptoms and realizing, you know, having all these insights about myself, oh, I can use this too. This really does work. And mm -hmm. it was, I, I think it can be like that, but it does feel like you'd want to more be leading as opposed to uh, totally side by side. I think that's the fear that I have with almost disclosing too much is that somebody will feel like it's almost the blind leading the blind. How do you stay in the position of um let me let me think of the word yeah of having sort of a voice of authority not necessarily being authoritative but having some knowledge that you can impart when you're also struggling with similar kinds of things as as your clients are yeah yeah no that's a really important nuance here yeah that it's not it's not that yes we're in exactly the same position but we're we're both equally human and and have been through similar things or will go through similar things. Um, and yeah, it's not like the, like the uh, oncologist is sitting there, you know, getting a chemo drip alongside you know, the patient, like they're having different experiences at different times and they have different, different roles. Yeah. I think, I mean, really, I think it's about, you know, sharing, sharing what I found that works and um, you know, how, how I found a way through without pretending that now I'm done with that. Like I, I used to have difficult, you know, uh, uh, intrusive thoughts too, but now I got rid of them, you know, versus a more realistic uh, approach, which is more like, you know, I, I you know, struggle with these types of things from time to time. Like a lot of people do. Here's something that can be really helpful when I, um, you know, need, need more um, help in this area. Here's a you know an exercise um, that I like to try that you can use as well. But but yeah, it is a, it is a delicate balance I think of of I mean I've I've found this with other you know like some books that I've read um, or uh, even people that I've interviewed on my podcast where it feels like maybe it tips too far in the kind of self disclosure we're all human type of way where it just sort of seems like the person is almost like giving up. Or something, or just saying like, um, 
like it doesn't feel like there's anything uh, inspiring or better that this person has found. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's so important to try to find that balance. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up a little bit and talk about this model that you're sharing in your book, Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So you describe at the front end of the book how traditional cognitive behavioral therapy really subscribes to a more medical model and that this kind of model can be limiting. So I wonder if you can share how traditional CBT is can be limited and how mindfulness can help transcend those limitations. Well, when I was learning about CBT, you know, initially in, in grad school, I mean, it was very explicitly grounded in the medical model, meaning there's, you know, you, you identify these well-defined problems like depression with specific criteria, and then you find a specific treatment like a medication or cognitive therapy that then you apply to that problem. And then the hope is that you eliminate the problem. So the person, let's say, started out neutral and they have this medical condition or psychiatric condition, and now they're like a negative eight. And so you're hoping your treatment can bring them back, maybe back to zero, maybe at least up to like negative six or negative five. So there, there are advantages to that approach. You know, it's easy to measure things. It's easy to specify what the, the target of your treatment is and, and what your treatment is. It's easy to match uh, treatments like 16 weeks of cognitive therapy versus 16 weeks of fluoxetine. And yet, I mean, I think most of us, if you, know, you think about what's important to you in life, most of us probably don't say like, I really want to just stay right around zero, like as close to zero as possible. <laughs> Maybe I'm not going to quite get there, but if I could be like a negative one or a negative two. That would be close enough. <laughs> that would be awesome. So it's, you know, it's a very mechanistic model that, you know, I, I give the analogy of like a car, like you buy a car, you know, it comes off the, the assembly line and that's the best it's ever going to be. And, you know, it, when you, you take your car in for service, you're hoping to, you know, keep it as close to that original level as possible. But we're not cars. And most of us, I think, aspire to something better, something like growth or, you know, self-actualization. You had a great conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman on the podcast recently. And, and you know, as he points out, you know, there are these, these deep human drives that we have for, for transcendence, for growth, for self-actualization. And we can't capture those things in a, you know, simple medical model like what I learned with CBT, which was, you know, let's, let's help this person, you know, to remove their symptoms. So... That can be a really helpful approach. You know, it helps a lot of people with depression and anxiety and other conditions. But I found that, I mean, for me, one of the most exciting things about CBT and especially about mindful CBT is the the the, the idea of you know that the ceiling isn't at zero. That that we can use these same types of approaches. We can you know tend to our thoughts and plan effective behaviors, and then bring in the mindful element and really be present in our lives and open to things that are happening. And that allows us, that, that facilitates our growth. It helps us to remove obstacles that would get in the way of our 
know, um, growing and, and becoming more fully who we are. And, um, and for me, the, you know, bringing in mindfulness is really essential for getting there. We can talk more about why that was, but, but it just, it, it felt to me at times, like I felt a little bit almost like embarrassed of CBT because it did, it felt, it felt so not only simple, but simplistic. It felt like it was leaving out a lot of our, a lot of, of who we are, our sort of our full being. And so that I think is where mindfulness I found really kind of opened up the practice. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear a, a bit more about what, like how you came to that realization and, and maybe I can sort of, uh, put that into context with a question that, well, actually, let me, mm-hmm. let me frame it differently because I, so I'm curious about how you came to the realization that mindfulness was so important, but I want to sort of ask this question that, that's a little bit two-sided because I think mindfulness has so much power and yet we live in this culture where mindfulness has almost been commodified. And so I remember you, before you left Twitter, made some comment that really (laughs) resonated with me about how mindfulness has really turned into this consumer-driven culture of crystals and oils and yoga pants that really causes it to lose its essence. So how can we use mindfulness in a way that's beneficial given that we live in a culture that really has transformed mindfulness into something of a commodity? Mm. God, it's such an important question. And I tend to get pretty worked up when I when I think about this and talk about it because it just it feels like it feels like a corruption of something that that had and that has so much power and potential. So I just I mean I I had this other thing I tweeted back when I was back when I was on Twitter. By the way, it's been great. Uh, being gone, even though I, there are times. Do you feel I, free? <laughs> I do. I feel, yeah, I definitely feel free. I feel, you know, a little bit lost at times where I'm like, oh, this is where I would click over to Twitter at this point. Are you, you know? are you not on social media at all these days? I mean, I, I have Facebook. Um, I'm, I barely use it. Um, so yeah, I have very little social media pre- presence now. Mm. But the, this, this particular tweet was something like if you, if you meet mindfulness in the road, kill it. So to take off, you know, on that that quote, if you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. Meaning, you know, if someone says this is what Buddhism is, or this is what it means to be mindful, then it's probably going to be a limiting and kind of kind of bastardized version of whatever the person's describing. And I think that's really, I mean, I, I as I say in the book, I, I even struggle a lot of the time to use the word mindfulness because it has been reduced so much to, I mean, either just sort of stripped of its, of so much of, of what the the practice can involve that it's just, it's kind of like a little hack, like, oh yeah, here's a, here's a thing you can do. Like, I mean, it's, then it's fine. It can be helpful, but but it also seems like it's it's not a benign thing to water something down to the point where someone doesn't realize that there's so much more to it. And on the other side, there's just so much bullshit that gets added to it. Like like you suggested, like, I mean, if someone's into, you know, other you know, types of things like, you know, certain costumes that they wear, or bells that they ring or things like that, I think that's, that's all fine. I, I don't, I, I 
the the best part of me, I think that the true part of me, uh, the way I really think about this, I'm not, I'm not hating on those things, but only when they're presented as like, well, this is what it means to be mindful. And if you're going to be mindful, you know, then I slip into my quiet, gentle voice and then you're going to speak in a certain way and dress in a certain way. And, and, and it becomes like a kind of like a straitjacket, like a spiritual straitjacket. And I, I'm guessing this is the psychodynamic part of me, I guess, but I, I'm guessing I'm, I'm also drawing on my own, you know, religious background that I, I grew up in, in a bit of a religious straitjacket myself in, you know, fundamentalist Christianity and, you know, having, having my you know, deepest and most personal experiences and relationships kind of arbitrated by someone outside of myself, I just find infuriating. Mm-hmm. So, so that's sort of the backdrop for <laughs> me when I, when I think about mindfulness. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it can be hard to, to talk about without, um, without limiting it in some way, but but what I found, what I really connected to in, in what we're calling mindfulness is the, I think it all just comes down to connection, connection to the present, connection to myself, connection to other people. And, and that type of connection for me, what I experience, what I experienced that as it feels spiritual. It feels like an inherently, um, like it, it inherently feels like it's a part of something that's not mind, not body, but really the deepest part of ourselves, kind of our raw experience of, of attention or, or conscious awareness. Yeah, you have this part in your book where you talk about how listening deeply can be like meditation in action. And I've actually always said that the most mindful I ever am is when I'm conducting therapy or when I'm listening yeah. deeply to a story that my kids are telling mm. and just everything falls away and I'm just so in it. So for me, that yeah. really evoked this, ah, that is what mindful, that what sort of meditation is, but meditation in action is. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that to me... You know, I think sometimes we can have a resistance to mindfulness because, you know, oh, I tried to meditate and it didn't work, or it's just so irritating and, you know, those people think they're they're so spiritual, but then I go out and see how they live and they look like anyone else or worse. But then when you describe that actual experience, you know, it's grounded in a moment, I think we all can relate to that kind of thing. Like, I was right there. I was just there. I was doing what I was doing. I was in the moment whether it's, you know, with a person or, you know, I, I had this experience the other day where we, this, I think New, Year, New Year's Day, we had a little gathering of uh, our, our, each of our kids. We have three kids. They each had, you know, one or two friends over for kind of an early, like a, a New Year's Eve lunch. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting at each of their ages to see the, the very clear developmental window that they're each in. Like, oh, that's what, middle school girls are like, <laughs> you know, like, like their own sort of subspecies and sort of, you know, having these moments where you sort of see, like you see clearly what's happening. And those, I think we all can relate to those things in a way that we don't have to call it necessarily mindfulness, but just you know, really being connected to your life, connected in a way that's not grasping or resisting, but it's just it's just in it. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, my favorite definition of mindfulness is, you know, non-judgmental present moment awareness. You're just yeah. so in the moment. There's no evaluative component. You're just in it. You're present. Um, and I think most of us have that experience, but it, it is almost as if by calling it mindfulness, it sort of removes us because we're looking for something that we're not sure we've ever experienced. But if we can sort of peel back the language and just attend to the experience, that that is what it is. Yeah. 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 And then we think we have to be, yeah, we have to, we think, we think we have to be a certain kind of way in order to be mindful. And often it is, it's sort of anodyne. It's like, you know, stripped of anything. I mean, as if, you know, we can't be angry and mindful or, uh, you know, or active or, uh, or really just like all the stuff that really makes us juicy as human beings. Yeah. So I actually, I'm going to, engage you as my clinical supervisor here for a moment, because I do think as a therapist who's very interested in mindfulness, I'm constantly trying to get people on board with this idea of just kind of sinking into the present moment and attending to their experience. But And maybe it is the language, but I often do hear from clients that I'm seeing, I just don't think I'm good at mindfulness, or it doesn't work for me, or it's too boring, or I don't find benefit. So I'm curious how you respond to that in the room, sort of what kinds of language do you use, but also how do you practice it in sessions who are brand new to the idea of this present moment awareness or who might be resistant to it as a way of, I don't know, exposing them to some of these experiences? Yeah, I run into that a lot myself and, and you know, it can definitely relate to some of those reactions, um, you know, having had them myself. But I, I, I don't tend to push well, you know, when someone is not, when, when they're not receptive to it, I mean, I, I do the best I can to explain clearly, you know, like what the benefits are and and to dispel some of the myths about it, like that mindfulness is only about focusing on your breath or that it has no relevance for your life outside of meditation or that you have to wear, you know, certain clothes or sit in a certain way to practice it. But beyond, you know, when, when someone really is, is not interested or they, you know, I lead them through a meditation in one of our sessions together. And, and, you know, while we're doing it, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, like this is a real experience. Like I'm really, you know, <laughs> they're going to cry at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. And they're going to say, wow, I've never really experienced mindfulness like that before. Oh, so that's what it is. So we end and, you know, what was that like for you? No right or wrong answers. Just, you know, well, How'd you experience that? Uh, it's fine. You know, I mean, I got kind of bored. My mind wandered, but, but yeah, yeah. And they just kind of move on. Like as far as they're concerned, it was mostly a non-experience. And yeah. So, it, I mean, and I, I think a lot of this, I mean, for all of us, it's just, there are things that we're open to at certain times that we're ready for and, and things that we're not. And, and as much as I, believe that all of us would benefit from, you know, more, uh, more practice in, in being present and, and receiving our reality. I think there are just, there are times when, when we're sort of ready to enter into the, that kind of practice and times when we're not. So I, I try to at least, you know, maybe, maybe plant some seeds that a person can come back to, but maybe at a minimum, uh, I, w- I would like to not turn the person off from mindfulness forever. Yeah. And then maybe if, if, if I've 
succeeded in not doing that, then maybe maybe that's all right. Yeah. I like that. I mean, that, that's acceptance in action, which is a beautiful thing to model and, and to sort of use as a way to not close people off and cause uh, psychological reactance towards mindfulness. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I just want to add, I think that's that's a great point about modeling it too, that whether or not we're we're explicitly teaching it, at least we can can be embodying it in our sessions. And also just making mindfulness as... as non-precious as possible so it doesn't you know it doesn't have this this kind of weird religious feeling where the person worries they're going to offend us if they don't like it or they're not a good person if they're not open to it like whatever you know you don't have to do it yeah i love that hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I actually, I want to talk a bit more about acceptance um, in, in a couple different ways. And I want to start off by having you help us distinguish between acceptance and passivity. So you share this story of non-acceptance, of being in the middle of the night with an infant daughter who wasn't sleeping and really struggling with acceptance. But the opposite of that, you write, is not passivity or resignation. And Sometimes it can be hard to distinguish between those. So I wonder if you can help us understand what it means to accept discomfort or something in the world that you don't like or something in yourself that you don't like versus to be resigned to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, one one big difference to me is there's a different there's a different kind of emotional tone that follows from each of those. So when I when I resign myself to something or I, you know, kind of, I mean, I think of resigning as like throwing in the towel. It's a, it's kind of a posture of giving up, but acceptance can also be a, a type of giving up, but it, but this is a, a, a sort of defeated way of giving up. And it leaves, I think, a sense of loss of not, not just like, um, not just that we haven't gotten what we want, but, um, but there's no peace, really, I think, that, that's attached to resignation. Whereas acceptance, I think, I think real acceptance does bring its own kind of peace. Like, all right, I can let go of that, of that struggle, you know, a, a pointless struggle, and accept that this is how things are. I think the really important uh, element that often gets left out, or, or, or at least that people imagine is not a part of mindful acceptance, is that then from that place of acceptance, then I can act. So when I, you know, had a very difficult boss, I struggled against that and I, I kept trying to, you know, make things work and imagining, oh, if I just, 
you know, said things right or did the right thing, this person wouldn't be difficult. And then I finally realized she's just difficult. Like that's, I, I knew that before I started. Everybody told me that. And that's why, you know, so many people have left because this person is so hard to get along with. And so that acceptance, first it let me release a struggle that wasn't helping, you know, like banging my head against a wall. And then from there, then I could act in a meaningful way. Like, whoa, well, this person's not going to change. I don't want to stay in, in a job like this. So I'll look for work elsewhere. So acceptance really is the, the, the best foundation for taking effective action. So I think that's another really, really big difference. I'm not just resigned. All right, this person's difficult. I'm just going to have this miserable job until I retire. No, it's a more, a more active, uh, engaged acceptance. All right, this is this is the deal. Now what? Yeah, yeah. Well, you stop fighting the reality that you have no control over and conserve your energy to make choices about where you do have some influence. And I think that is so empowering. But I do want to ask a follow-up question that that is a, a personal question for you, which is what about realities that we can't change, that we can't walk away from, like illness? Uh-huh. How yeah. do we accept that and act in ways that move us toward a path of healing if those realities are inalterable? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very, a very pertinent question. I mean, just... I, I go through highs and lows or, or like uh, worse and less worse times with this illness, which is still not completely defined. Like it's most likely something related to Lyme that's never been treated, but it's hard to get a diagnosis and maybe even harder to find treatment. Well, and that can be a really hard component to acceptance too, if we don't even really, if we can't wrap our heads around what it is that we're accepting. And that's a truth of being alive. Like there are some things that we just can't wrap our heads around because we don't have the answers. Yeah. 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 And that's something I've gone back and forth on, you know, for the first, first couple of years, I was really engaged and, you know, let's get to the bottom of this and, you know, all kinds of tests and scans and specialists. And, and then at some point I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I'm, I'm taking on so much stress just from the hours of doctor's appointments every week. I just, I just quit it all. I was like, nope, no more doctors, no more, you know, acupuncture and craniosacral massage. I'm just gonna, you know, live my life as best I can and try to get some enjoyment and and uh, you know, peace and comfort in my day to day life. But, I mean, my my wife and I have had several discussions about this. Like, she, you know, has really wanted me to keep looking and, you know, pushing and you know, try to find something that she really believes that I can get to the bottom of this. And, and so I think there, I, I, I haven't always been clear about where I've fallen between acceptance and resignation. I think times there has been a sort of like, uh, I mean, in a way, a, a giving up that's been helpful in some ways, but maybe not so helpful in others. So, so this morning, getting back to the, the present, I, I, um, I just found myself in a really difficult place. Like my nervous system does this weird thing where like I'm all like I just hard to describe, but like it feels like there's something in my nervous system that is trying to get out. Mm. Um and like my body's kind of shaky and I feel like I'm in like psychological pain, but it's through my whole body. 
So I used to, yeah, yeah, I don't prefer it. (laughs) You know, I, I used to have those types of experiences and I would just feel despondent. You know, I describe in the book, these, these kinds of episodes where I'd just be lying on the couch, just like feeling like, um, like, you know, just hopeless and lost. And now I mean, some of us having more, more perspective, kind of knowing that, you know, things will probably be better tomorrow or the next day or at some point um, that I don't, I don't get as lost in them and I don't fight them as much. It's like, all right, this is what's happening now. Today's, you know, harder than, than other days. And I mean, and, but you know, yeah, I, I, I hear myself talking about some things sometimes and I don't, I don't think I'm intending to, but it, I think I can give this impression that it's sort of like, and you know, I'm kind of okay with that. It's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, as if I, I, what I, what I want to make sure I include is part of what I'm fine with, with is the fact that like, I'm really fucking pissed off sometimes about it, yeah. you know, like, like there, there's still lots of times where I've just had it. I just feel like, oh, like I don't want to do this anymore. Like I, I can't believe I'm back in this place. And I thought I'd gotten clear of it. And, you know, with the, with the, the physical symptoms where the bottom just falls out at times, my sleep falls apart. But that's, so when I'm talking about acceptance, I'm not talking about some kind of, you know, BS, like, like I'm pretending like it doesn't affect me, but I'm, you know, allowing myself to be deeply affected by this and, you know, to feel the, the pain and the grief, but there's a larger, there's a larger context, a larger kind of encompassing of that pain, pain and suffering that itself is not touched by the pain that is not in pain itself, you know, this, this observer part of ourselves. And that to me is what has felt like the, the spiritual connection that I've found that I, I don't think, I mean, I say spiritual, but I don't think it has to be a kind of, you know, this, this sort of um, like esoteric experience or something that's, that's really that metaphysical. It's just an, a, a natural part of ourselves. There's this, there's this, there's this quality of attention that all of us can tap into that just that that can observe our experience and it feels like that part of myself that's always been there that's always sort of who i've always been you know through all the changes of my life so i don't know what your original question was (laughs) (laughs) well i'm just sitting here with rapt attention and thinking of all of these experiences of my own as i'm sure our listeners are are too of like, how would it have been different if I had gone through this immense pain and I had just been open to it? I'm actually, this is so random, but because, you know, you had me on to talk about working parenthood, but I'm thinking about childbirth oh, yeah. and how different it is to just accept how utterly painful the experience mm. is versus to be fighting for alleviation of pain. And that doesn't, like, if you can accept it, it doesn't mean it's not painful, but it does mean you sort of ride the waves of pain. And it isn't for everybody. And this is a bit of a segue to my next question, because accepting discomfort is part of what's advocated in acceptance-based treatments. But it can get a bit thorny when it comes to psychiatric medications, right? Because those are intended to, for example, alleviate the suffering that goes along with depression or anxiety or other illness. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on psychiatric medication, for example, for depression? And then what was your stance in your own treatment, if you're willing to share? Yeah, sure. So 
I know, you know, psychiatric medications have helped a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people find them, you know, an, an essential part of their recovery. You know, whether from depression or anxiety or something else. So, if someone you know is happy with their medication and you know, found it important, then you know, I, I think that's that's great. And you know, there's a lot of research showing that that these medications, you know, certain medications can be helpful for certain conditions. Um, I mean, I'm 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 not a fan of medications like uh, like benzodiazepines, you know, like Xanax and Ativan for uh, you know like long term use for managing anxiety, uh, just because of all the problems that are associated with those, and 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 uh, they're just they're not intended for you know as, as a long term solution, even though they're often prescribed that way. Um, for I mean, I, I, I have to be honest, I don't think I've, I've expressed this as clearly in the past, but um, I have a lot of misgivings about medication, a lot of reservations about it. Um, the, I think the, the, the effectiveness of medications have been oversold. I think most people don't, don't realize how, um, how little, um, how, how much of the response to let's say a medication for for depression is um, is probably attributed to the placebo response. You know, if you look at the right. studies and you see, you know, placebo is is having like a fifty percent response, and then the medication is having maybe a sixty percent response. So you're getting like a little a little boost, and and there's pretty good evidence showing that most of the advantage in these clinical trials is probably for people with really severe depression. It's probably not doing much, if anything, for people with with you know mild to moderate, even sort of like low grade severe depression on average. So, um, and there you know the side effects are not pleasant for a lot of people, um, and not just the side effects of going on the medication, but then a lot of people find it you know kind of like a I don't know exactly the analogy, but you know once they're taking it, even if it's not helping, it's really hard to get off. Because of the the you know, sometimes severe withdrawal effects the person has, so I, I don't want to be irresponsible and and say that nobody should be on these medications, um, or that somebody you know should should stop the medications without consulting a doctor. Um, but but I mean personally, I am you know, very reluctant to um, you know to to take psychiatric medication I mean, medication in general. To be honest, um, mm-hmm. unless it's it's really needed, um, but. But I think there's, I, I think the the drug companies have, you know, by and large, done a really effective job at at, uh, you know, painting a, a more optimistic picture of these medications than really matches the reality. So I had several people, you know, tell me, you know, when I was describing when I was going through, you know, f- good friends, and they were saying, you know, there's you know no harm in considering medication, um, and I mean they obviously you know, had my best interest at heart and meant well, but I had no interest in medication in part because it was, I mean, I knew that, that the type of treatment that, you know, you and I provide cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be at least as effective as, you know, medications. I mean, medications can be helpful, but, um, but, you know, CBT is, um, tends to be more effective in the long run as well. You know, if you want to stop the, the treatment at some point, um, but also I just, you know, I, I looked at my life and saw that I was just a kind of an ideal candidate for 
for these treatments because there were such obvious targets. You know, my my thoughts, my, my way of thinking was all screwed up. So, you know, there's a lot of work that I knew I could do there. My life was not exactly filled with activities that were enjoyable and, you know, important to me. And so, I knew there were, you know, things I could do there as well. Um, and then, you know, the practices and mindfulness and meditation uh, that I knew could be helpful. So, um, so yeah, I never, I never really even considered going on medication. I not saying I wouldn't at some point if, you know, we're in a position where it seemed like that was the best option. But, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I didn't take, take any medication. And, um, at least at this point, I feel like I wouldn't I appreciate you sharing and, and thank you for letting me ask such personal questions because for me, it I think is a part of the conversation that gets ignored, neglected. And so much, I, I do think, you know, we live in such a consumer driven culture and we talked about it with mindfulness and certainly that's true with medicine, medication of all kinds. I recently got very obsessed with the Sackler family. I watched that show Dope Sick and then I read Empire of Pain, which is just a total indictment of what the pharmaceutical industry can do and how it can really hoodwink us. And I don't think most of the players are as um, morally questionable as the Sackler family was. But I do think that the motivations can really color how the evidence gets interpreted and for that reason, I do think that we have, as a culture, this overly optimistic view of what medications can do and a belief that we shouldn't have to feel the discomfort of our feelings. And I'll just share, I mean, you shared a lot of personal things. I've had a pretty significant uh, anxiety and depression history, too, and of a pretty significant family history. And I've been told by so many people, including family members, that I should go on medication. I've been similarly reticent, though. I am really appreciative that you're willing to talk about that so openly. Mm, yeah, I appreciate your sharing that about yourself. I mean, it's, to be honest, it's harder for me to. I mean, it, it's it's harder for me to um, give my my true opinion about medication in general than it is to describe my own struggles and mm-hmm. thoughts on medication. Just because, I mean, I feel so much. Um, uh, concern about liability. You know, like what if I discourage someone from taking medication and and then you know so or, or you know making people feel bad about being on medication which right. I definitely don't want to do but I also want to give people as I understand it you know the actual state of the science and and accurate information so they can make informed choices right yeah and I do think it's complicated because even even if it is largely placebo effect yeah. and there's some additional piece if the placebo effect is helping you and you feel better and more able to engage in your life with value, you know, in line with your values, then, then maybe that's not such a bad thing and shouldn't be discouraged. I think it can get pretty hairy in terms of the recommendations. I mean, it's always interesting when I can't prescribe medication because I'm not licensed to do so, but when patients will ask me, should I start medication? Because I don't seem as you want to discourage it if they think it's the right choice for them. But I do want to share with them some of the hesitations that I might have in terms of, um, I don't know what the benefits are and what the what the disadvantages might be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree about the placebo too. That it's. I mean, what are you going to do? Like pl- prescribe a placebo? You know. There's, <laughs> but I think you know if it'd be nice if there were as large of a placebo 
effect in our culture for you know therapy as for medication you know if if people had been convinced that you know this is your this is your brain with this little receptor and therapy fits right into that receptor yeah. You know, like the, like with the... If you read Seth's book, you'll feel <laughs> amazing. You'll never feel depressed again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We could sell that story. It'd be nice to capitalize on the placebo effect for treatments that have only, I mean, as far as I know, pretty much only positive side effects. Like that would be, that'd be a nice setup. Yeah. It would be nice. We'll keep working on that. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. All right. So, so much of what you talk about in mindful cognitive behavioral therapy aligns with acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm curious where you see those two treatments diverge and and where are the important places that they converge? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, you know, been a fan of ACT for, for a while now, probably since I first learned about it in grad school. Uh, I had a great conversation with Steve Hayes on my podcast a couple years ago. And he blurbed your book as well. He did, yes, yeah, very kindly. Um, and as well did Angela Duckworth and Scott Barry Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> was big so names fun, on yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think you know one of the one of the big differences to me is that my experience with ACT is that it pretty much um, treats it treats thoughts as really not not important. It doesn't engage with them very directly um, and, and tell me if I'm misrepresenting anything about ACT. But it's... Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's less about modifying thoughts and more about learning to relate to them in different ways. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, that's an important part of, of my approach, you know, uh, meeting our thoughts, kind of relating to them in, in different ways. But, uh, but I also incorporate, you know, some of the parts of more traditional CBT where we do, you know, kind of get in, get in there with our thoughts, you know, take a look at them, especially the ones that keep coming back and that are, are bothering us and obviously are not really aligned with reality. Then we can look at the evidence and, um, you know, find maybe an alternative way of thinking that's more helpful. Uh, but, but not in the, like, some of the more hardcore CT stuff, cognitive therapy is more about like, well, let's, you know, figure out how much you believe this thought and then, and then, you know, find some evidence that contradicts it. And then, you know, figure out, okay, has your belief in the thought gone down? Like not giving thoughts that much centrality where it's all about like, we have to fix these thoughts, but, you know, maybe bring, bringing a lighter touch to it. Um, but I, I think it's just, it's a, there are a lot of points of overlap, but it's also just a, a bit of a different model in that it's, it's kind of CBT plus mindfulness, whereas I feel like ACT is more, much more along, uh, it sort of dimin- like really diminishes the, the cognitive part and focuses more on acceptance and behavior. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair description? I think that is a fair description. But it is interesting because I think that some of the tools that are really uh, common in acceptance and commitment therapy are ones that you use to help folks manage both their thoughts and or respond to their thoughts and their behaviors. I'm just thinking, for example, you talk about thought decentering, which I think is very similar to what we call diffusion in acceptance and commitment therapy. Yes. It's sort of figuring out how to unhook from thoughts, make them less um, sticky. And, and I, I, you know, as I was reading your book, it really is clear that you help people do what's, what 
cognitive behavioral therapist called thought restructuring, sort mm-hmm. of, you know, really attack, not attacking the thoughts, but challenging them and really looking at them and trying to see if you can modify them to be more helpful, which is not something that we do very often in acceptance and commitment therapy. So I think that is, um, my assessment would align with that too. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do just want to, I mean, Scott Barry Kaufman has been very, you know, kind saying things like, you know, this is a revolutionary paradigm and, um, I don't want to disagree with him, but I also, you know, acknowledge in the book and want to acknowledge in general that this is, you know, there's this cliche, we stand on the shoulders of giants and, you know, I, this is stuff that builds on things that others like Steve Hayes and, you know, uh, Sendel Siegel and others have developed. Um, and, and, you know, their work built on the Stoics and, and, right. you know, Tim Beck. So, so we're all kind of building on each other. Yeah, collaborating, connected yeah. to each other, which yeah. is which is an important part of what you advocate is, you know, to be in connection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think, act, be is the mantra that you sprinkle throughout the book, yeah. uh, Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It's the title of your podcast, and it's a beautiful mantra, I think. Um, so I just want to thank you, Seth, for speaking re- with me today for this beautiful book, for sharing your personal story, as well as the wisdom that people can take and use themselves. And I really hope people pick up your book, which we will link to in our show notes. And given that you're not on social media, where else can folks find you? Uh, uh, the best place is my website, sethgillahan.com. There are links to everything from there. Okay. And we'll link to that as well on our blog and in our show notes. Thank you so much, Seth. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold and our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.